Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians together first. These are exciting chapters. I, uh, I want to hit the thing that really spoke to me this week more than anything first. And then we'll go back and we'll, we'll do an overview of some other stuff. Um, okay, here's something about me that, that you should know. Like, I'm on a journey, right? Like, I, I don't know, wherever it is I'm going, I haven't arrived there yet. And I'm, I'm in process. And I, my thinking is in process, right? And like, one of my life goals is to believe every verse in the Bible. Sometimes we'll build theologies or we'll develop our systems, but they're only based on some of the verses. And then we kind of ignore other verses or we gloss over them or whatever. So, uh, so this is an area where like, I, I take the Word of God very seriously and, and I'm still in that process, Right? So, um, you know, a lot of people, like, when they come to the Torah, they, they, like, they just feel such a restoration to the whole Word of God. And, and you know, the Old Testament just comes alive for them. And, and I've heard several people, like, not connected to each other, say, you know what, I just felt like I was born again, again. Like, it was that big of a life change for me. Like, I just came to know Yeshua that much better, eh? And, and I, can, I can testify to that in my own life. But, but, but for a lot of people, they say, okay, you know, I've got the Torah, and I've arrived. Like, I, I have arrived at the final destination, and there's no more growth for me. There's nothing more that I have to learn. Like, basically, now I can just sit back and criticize the, everybody else. You know, really. It's tempting to, it's tempting to develop that attitude. And uh, it's dangerous. It's like a danger that every one of us have to be on guard against. For me, I look at, I look at that return to the Torah as just the entry level like pass like we've, we, we've just made it through the door it's like you've just gone out of Egypt but you have like a whole wilderness before you and you have a whole inheritance in the land of Canaan that you still have to go into so I think one of the great dangers to the messianic community is that we become complacent that we think we've arrived that we think oh well, maybe I do something that other people don't do therefore you know I, I got it together like that's that's wrong so you know, in the Messianic community, like, something that I constantly do is I say, are we factoring in all the verses? Are we experiencing what the early Yeshua movement experienced? If we're not, how come? If I'm not, how come, right? Um, dissatisfaction can be a very healthy thing. And, uh, and I encourage each one of you, be dissatisfied in the areas where you feel the Father has more for you. Yeshua said... Uh, you're blessed when you're dissatisfied. Happy are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they're going to be the ones who are satisfied. He said, woe to you when you're, when you're already filled, because you're, you're going to end up really hungry in the end, eh? Like, this is, these are the things that our master said. So um, th- this, is the way I, this is the way I read the Bible, right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being critical. I'm looking at things objectively, and I'm wanting everything that he has. So um, that's why maybe you've noticed I often point out verses where pop theology seems to conflict with certain verses. And I say, do we really believe the whole Bible? What about this? You know, um, what about us in the Messianic community? Have we factored in this section or that section? Uh, It's something that applies to all of us. So I'm going to be discussing that for a couple of minutes here. Um, At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about different... um, different appointments in the body of Messiah, in, in, in his congregation. Uh, he says that he, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now you are Mashiach's body, 
and individually members of it. So like, we're a body, we're a part of the body of Messiah, and you and you and you, you're, you're like a, a part of it, right? And God has appointed in the congregation first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. So um, he, he lists some, and then he goes on to say in verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts. So according to Paul, these are giftings. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit. He lists them in the first part of 1 Corinthians 12. And then he goes on to include things like, um, like the apostolic, the prophetic, and teacher uh, functions also. Now, if you look at the Messianic community today, we are primarily a teacher-oriented movement. Uh, why is this? I, I think largely it's because um, a large section of the Messianic movement is uh, people returning to God's Torah returning to a lifestyle that is structured according to God's commandments, uh, like Yeshua lived, right? And uh, what does Torah mean? Teaching. So it kind of makes sense that a return to the Torah would involve um, a significant amount of teaching. But according to Paul, the gift of teacher is number three in terms of like, if you're going to rate the gifts in terms of I don't know. I mean, everyone is valuable, right? Every single gift is valuable, and each has a part to play. But according to Paul, there are greater gifts, and every one of us should... What did he, what did he say here? Since earnestly desire them. In other words, like, there are some that you should really want. So let's look at, let's look at the gifts of apostle and prophet for a couple of minutes, because I feel like this is an area that gets very little airtime in the Messianic Jewish slash Hebrew roots movement. Uh, the, these are things that for a lot of people are non-realities. Um, I, maybe there's a divergence of opinions about it. So I want to have a little discussion about that. Like when you think of an apostle, what do you think of? What pictures come to your mind? I think of like, the heroes of the early the early Yeshua movement, you know, men who were on the front lines, men who really like men who laid it down, men who were who who didn't back down for anything. Yeah, that's right. The singular is a shaliach. Yeah. So um, did you, I don't know if you all caught that. Also, uh, the reason I'm repeating you is for our live streaming guests, right? Because we have a lot of people on the live stream and they can't hear everything we say. So just so you know, it's it's not because I'm dumb and I can't understand you and I'm repeating it to make sure I get it. Um, just so you know. But yeah, so uh, the Hebrew word for an apostle is a shaliach. Everybody say shaliach. S-H-A-L-I-A-C-H. Actually, um, like apostle isn't a word that's really used in the Western world outside of a religious context. Um, the word shaliach, though, is a word that continues to be used today in the Jewish world. Like if you have someone who um, is representing the, the uh, country of Israel... That person is a shaliach. Like it has a diplomatic um, type of thing. Even down in Saskatoon at the conservative synagogue, Agudas Israel, they have what they call the young shlichim. And that's a couple that they import from Israel every year, a young couple that comes. And they're almost like, function like Jewish youth pastors. Like they spend time with the youth, they teach them some Hebrew, they, uh, they share. It's kind of like this connection with Israel that the synagogue in Saskatoon has. So, you know, you could almost call them the young apostles. They're people who, who come from Israel and they represent Israel. 
Um, that's, that's kind of the idea in, in the Jewish world right now. Uh, Mike used the term emissary. I think that's also the term used in David Stern's uh, translation. I like that term. Uh, I, again, apostle kind of has the connotation of like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a religious term, right? Uh, an emissary, to me, isn't as much of a religious term. Also, it's a term that's used more in the Jewish world. So if you talk about apostolic stuff, to a Jewish person, like they're going to have an immediate disconnect. If you talk about an emissary, um, there's more chance that they will get it. Um, even um, our friend who wears a rainbow-colored hat, he's like the emissary from the nascent Sanhedrin to the non-Jewish world. What's his world? Roger, yeah, right. So he, um, there, there's a man who is like an emissary. He represents the nascent Sanhedrin to the non-Jewish world. And he's called an emissary, right? He's like an apostle from the Sanhedrin to the non-Jewish world. So that would be, that would be an example of that. I danced with him once, actually, at a big Messianic conference. So I, I'm sorry, I, uh, I couldn't remember his name off the top of my head. But his rainbow band on his hat is like a real identifier. But anyway, so this is the idea here, right? <clears throat> so an apostle is like someone who is sent. The, the root there is someone who is shalach, someone who is sent by God. It connotes mission, it connotes authority, it connotes like a specific assignment. This is the idea here. Um, what about a prophet? What, what, what images come to mind, or what do you think of when you think of a prophet? And like, be, 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 uh, be honest here, you know? Don't just say, well, this is what I should say. What really comes to your mind when you think of a prophet? A fortune teller. That's what I'm looking for. What do you really think of in today's culture, you know? A futuristic fortune teller. So just so you know, like, I don't have the big pat answer for this one, right? This is an area where I feel that we're in process. Like, I, I pray regularly for this. I, I pray that Messiah will raise up, like, apostles and prophets in the body of Messiah across Canada um, and in the Messianic community. Because like I said, this is just something that isn't a reality in much of the Messianic community. It's, it's not something that people talk about, right? And, but according to Paul, this is something that you and I should really want. So like basically every week I'm praying for this. And uh, I'm praying like, Father, raise up apostles who will represent you and who are backed by your power. Raise up the prophetic voice that, that comes with fire and, and that, you, that you support. You know, I, I, I pray for this. Because we want, we want Him. And often He communicates to us through those specific giftings. Um, what would you, what, like through the apostolic, what would you call that? The emissarial, the shaliachical, you know, um, through, through that and through the prophetic. And like I'm, um, Wayne, like, what, okay, Wayne said, you know, what comes to his mind is like a fortune teller, right? When it comes to prophets. I think probably most of us have been burned at some time by um, fakes or by glitz and glamour productions that claim to be prophetic or apostolic and maybe just weren't communicating the heart of God or really showing who Yeshua was very clearly. Um, I, I, I would call myself charismatic, but I would always like qualify that by saying I'm a conservative charismatic because there's just so much like hyper-crazy stuff out there that I just... I don't know. I am not. I'm. I don't. I'm not comfortable with it, right? And there's a like. There's a. There's a relatively close correlation between the Messianic Jewish world and the Charismatic world. Like they cross lines frequently, right? So, but you know, I would say on the whole, the Charismatic world has has definitely has one up on the Messianic Jewish world in the area of the apostolic and prophetic. Like at least people are talking about it in the Charismatic world. 
You know, at least people are crying out for more in that area. And again, like, I'm not talking about glitz and glamour and some of the hyper-emotionalism that passes for the apostolic and prophetic. I, I really appreciate, Mike, what you and uh, you, Cindy, are saying about how throughout the Tanakh, a prophet was a man uh, or woman who spoke for, for Yahweh and who called people back to him. Their message was consistently, come back to God and his Torah, over and over. You know, do a study of the prophetic in, in, the, uh, in the Bible, they wouldn't just say, come back to God. They'd say, come back to God's Torah. Come back to his mitzvot. And did that change? Did that, did that change all of a sudden when Yeshua came on the scene? No, it's always been that way. Because we can't come back to God without coming back to his word and applying it to our lives. It's the way it is. And that's what gets sticky sometimes. That's what makes us uncomfortable, right? Because that's what involves like change on a lifestyle level. And um, we hate change on a lifestyle level. We all do. I do. I don't like changing. In Israel... Like, if someone wasn't doing the Torah, then that person was living in sin and not walking with God. You know, I'm referring to, like, historically speaking. So, I mean, of course that person couldn't claim to be speaking for God if they're simultaneously living in sin and not listening to his voice themselves. Like, how, how can you claim to be his, communicating his voice when your lifestyle indicates you're not paying him much attention yourself, right? So there, there's something to be said for that. Absolutely. At the, at the same time, you don't want to write someone off because they're not doing as much of the Torah as you, right? Like, uh, the body of Messiah is very much in process right now. And Yeshua has been restoring stuff to the body of Messiah for centuries, regardless of whether we've been doing some of the stuff from the Torah, right? So there, I, I, I definitely think we're in process with that. But that is something to watch for. The other thing is something that I think that Cindy pointed out a couple of weeks ago. Revelation, it says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Yeshua. So the true prophetic spirit will be talking about the Master. It will, be, it will be pointing people to Yeshua. It will be communicating the Gospel, New Covenant realities, um, etc., et like in a very real way. Eh? That's another thing to watch for. Like if someone is claiming to be speaking prophetically and Yeshua is not part of the equation, your, your red light should be going off, right? Because he's the center of this thing. Here, here's, here's an observation. When someone actually functions on an apostolic level, that person will make people mad, that person will offend people, because that person will like speak with a level of authority that isn't popular in the Western world. Okay, especially if you're Canadian. Like, we Canadians, we like to couch everything we say with things like, well, I think, and well, this is my opinion, and maybe, I mean, we live in a world where, where uh, absolutes are rejected, right? So when someone just comes and says, this is how it is, and this is what God is saying, that, like, that gets people's hackles up really fast. And, and I just want to encourage you, watch out for that, because God is going to send people to the body of Christ. He's going to send people to the Messianic community, and sometimes people are going to say something from him, and um, if we're looking at things in the flesh, we're going to say, who does that person think he or she is to be saying that? You know? Isn't this so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, who works down at wherever? I mean, just, just remember that, right? This is a pattern to watch out for in our own lives. Um, I, I think prophets can make people very uncomfortable too. Again, because they, they, they function with a level of authority that comes from an intimacy with the Holy One that makes them, like, sometimes talk on the level that can really make us mad or offend us. And, uh, right, the one prophet, the true prophet who always prophesied bad things to the king and so he didn't want to have anything to do with them, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, these are just some things I'm thinking about here, eh? So, uh, on, like, on a practical level, let's be ready 
for when Yeshua begins to raise up people like that, who, who speak from that place of intimacy with him, with that authority, hopefully backed by his power, uh, hopefully like definitely in the parameters of his truth, you know, like based on the verses, I, I want to see more of that. I really do. Like I even look at the Messianic Jewish world today, and uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of teaching organizations, and I'm not satisfied. Like why don't why why aren't any of these Messianic teaching organizations raising anybody from the dead, or like seeing a lot of people being healed, or whatever? I mean, some of them are seeing healings and whatever, right? I just know there's more though. Like I if 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 people are teaching the Torah and they're testifying of Yeshua, and it's the real thing, then that should be backed by the power of God. And if it's not by, backed by the power of God, then my, in my opinion, something's missing from the equation. And, and so, you know, um, I, I'm dissatisfied. I, I, I'm praying for more, and I, I hope you can join with me in that. We are on a journey. We have not arrived. And um, Yeshua has more for his body. And I want it. I really do. Let's jump around a little bit here. Let's look at Exodus for a second. Okay, so you know the whole big supernatural sound and light show on Mount Sinai. Like the thundering voice, the, the lightning flashes, like the audible voice of God. What was that all about? Why did, why did he do that? Like that was, um, that was shock and awe, really. And he actually explicitly states why he did that. In... Um, Yeah, 19, 19 verse 6. In Exodus 19 verse 6. Oh yes, that was another, that was what he said after too, right Hannah? In 19 verse 6 he says this, um, nope, it's not there, sorry, that's from the Hebrew verses. Okay, let's try 19 verse 9. 19 9. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. So he said right there, why did he come in such a tangible way? Why did he speak audibly from Mount Sinai? He says, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Yeah, there's the idea of, of shamaing, of hearing. So um, let me ask you, like, do you believe in Moses? That sounds kind of scary, right? Like, we believe in God. We believe in Jesus. You know, if someone walks up and says... I believe in Moses. It's like, well, I think you kind of missed the whole point of the thing. But just stop and think about this for a second, though. Like, according to God, though, it's really important that we take the prophecy of Moses seriously. Like, uh, you know how Paul, he talked about how the Messianic community is founded, in Ephesians, he said, on the, pro- the, the prophets and the apostles. Well, the prophets are the prophets of Israel, the Hebrew Bible. The apostles are what we call the New Testament, right? So, the Hebrew Bible is extremely prophetic. Like the Torah is extremely prophetic. That, that powerful prophetic spirit is active in the prophecy of Moses. So if we're looking for the restoration of that prophetic office, the Torah has to be the foundation. It has to be something that is, um, that is central to that whole thing. So that's something to keep our eyes open for. Um, this, is, this is a theme that the Master really picked on too, this whole idea of like, taking Moses really seriously, uh, believing the prophecy of Moses. In, in the Gospel of John, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe Moses, how are you going to believe what I have to say? 
in the Gospel of Luke. Remember the rich guy who died and went to hell, and he's burning, and um, he's like, oh, Father Abraham, you know, um, send someone to tell my five brothers about this horrible place so they'll turn their lives around and they won't end up here too. And, and do you remember what Abraham said in that, in that story? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to... And then he said, if they don't listen to Moses, they're not going to listen if someone write, comes, comes to life from the dead. Wow, eh? Lazarus was raised from the dead, and Yeshua was raised from the dead, and that young man from Nain. I mean, and, and people still didn't believe, right? So, like, okay, so let's say that there is, uh, let's say people in the Jewish world who don't believe in Yeshua. Uh, maybe he hasn't revealed himself yet, just like Joseph didn't reveal himself to his brothers for a time. However, there's also a place where, like, if you seriously take Moses seriously and believe in him, it's going to point you towards Messiah, towards the Mashiach. It's the way it is. And um, I think this can be a real, like, defense system for the body of Messiah, too. Because there are false prophets, there are false apostles, and it's going to get a lot worse. And there are, like, there are fake Jesuses out there, right? Paul talked about another gospel, a different one, about, uh, like, ex- receiving another spirit and a different, uh, a different Jesus, right? So, I mean, there's a danger. And sometimes there will be demonic spirits that pose as a true prophetic or whatever, right? And here's, here's the words from the Master on this issue. If you want the real Yeshua, make sure that you take Moses seriously. Because if you believe Moses, you will believe Yeshua, if a prophetic spirit comes, but it doesn't line up with the foundational books of Scripture, the Torah, then there's a disconnect there and your red light should start beeping. You know what I'm saying? So the testimony of Yeshua and the Torah of Moses, those two go hand in hand, and they will keep the body of Messiah safe from a lot of the deception that is going to hit the Christian world in the end of days. So anyway, like that's an area where... We're in process. Let's just keep our ears open to Yeshua in that regard and continue like, uh, earnestly desiring those greater gifts to see them operative in the body of Messiah, to see them raised up in the Messianic community, and when he does raise them up, to, to, to support that, to align ourselves with that. Yeah. And then Paul goes on to say, and there's a more excellent way, and that way is love. And then he describes it. I think sometimes 1 Corinthians 13 gets cliched, like, really, how many times have you heard it, right? It just kind of gets the certain tone. When I read it, it gets the certain, like, tone to it that's like, I don't know. I just kind of mentally check out, and it's just this nice religious poetry. But I was trying to really connect with that passage this last week, just looking at these descriptors of love and being like, man, that's Yeshua, and that's, like, that's what the love of God looks like in me when I live in that, and I can see areas where I don't live in that. You know, it's kind of like taking a pulse or whatever. Okay, let's look at a couple other things in 1 Corinthians here. Uh, Paul begins this section by saying, Imitate me, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Messiah. That, that's a worthy life goal for each one of us. Like, to imitate Messiah to the point where we can say, Imitate me as I imitate him. That's also like the core of real discipleship, eh? In, in the Jewish world, discipleship means imitating your rabbi. Um... I'm, I'm always on the lookout for, for Christ-like, for Messiah-like people that I can imitate. I, I, look up to, I look up to godly people, right? It's like, wow, that person is acting in a way that's imitating Messiah. I'm going to imitate that person in that area, right? Um, 
I, I think I think that's the heart of real leadership too. I, I, like the greatest leaders in the kingdom of God are going to be the greatest followers of Messiah. So I mean, like there's kind of this buzz about leadership in the business world and also in the body of Christ, right? And uh, I think that can be a good thing, but the, the, like the heart of it is what Paul is saying here. It's the art of imitating Messiah, following Yeshua. And that's what's going to make you a great leader in the kingdom. And, and that's something that the Father is calling each one of us to. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about men and women having stuff on their heads. Um, let's look at that for a couple of minutes together. Okay, in, so in verse 4 here, let's try and identify what he's probably not talking about first, and then we'll look at some underlying principles here, and you can tell me what you think, okay? In verse 4 he says, Any, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Okay, now, in the Christian world, the interpretation of this is you take off your hat when you pray, which is the exact opposite of the Jewish world, where you put on something, like you put on a kippah or a hat to pray. Right? So Christians pray with their heads uncovered. Jews pray, as, Jews pray with their heads covered. Um, what was Paul talking about here? Maybe we could begin by ident- uh, eliminating what he's not talking about. Okay? Um, in the Torah, it says that the priests are always to have their heads covered when they enter the holy place, when they minister to the Almighty, when they're officiating. And of course that would involve prayer and prophecy. Right? So we have a problem here. Was Paul contradicting the Torah? No, he wasn't contradicting the Torah. So there are so you know just based on the foundational books, that must not be what he's talking about. He's not talking about taking off your cap before you pray, because the priests didn't do that, and that would be inconsistent. So that this is my understanding, right? I'm not going to like make some authoritative assertions here, but this is my understanding. So maybe he's not talking about literal head coverings. Um, let's look at verse 3 here. He talks more about the core of this thing. He says, there's something I want you to understand. I want you to understand that Mashiach is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and Elohim, God is the head of Mashiach, of Christ. So um, I assume he's talking about in a family unit here. So there's something about like the relationship that Messiah has with the Father. That's the relationship that you if you are like a man in a family unit, that's the relationship that you have with Messiah. Like, he is your head in a very practical way. He is your leader. You are going to receive, uh, what does your head do? Like, it shoots neural impulses to your body that moves your body, right? Gives guidance and some things like that. So Messiah is going to be shooting spiritual neural impulses to you to move you and also to move your family unit. Uh, that's, that's something that perhaps we could infer from that. Um, Sometimes I think that, okay, if you have like a situation in a congregation where there's like authoritarian leadership and there's a real control thing going on, it eclipses Messiah's headship of husbands and fathers in the congregation. That, that's often what happens. It's like the men get castrated and everyone has to like follow the one um, infallible leader or whatever. And I think that may have been a principle that, that Shaul was hitting on there. That would be my understanding. Here, here's another, here's another th- thread that ties into that. In uh, verse 7 he says, uh, A man isn't, ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. So here he just says a man shouldn't have his head covered. Now that either means that we should never wear toques in the winter, if we're men, 
because men shouldn't have their heads covered. <laughs> or maybe he's talking about this on like a headship level. Okay, I'm just I'm thinking through this. You tell me what you think. So yeah, stop and think about that for a second. Paul doesn't just say you are the image of God. He says you are the glory of God. Like if someone were to walk up and say, "Hey, I'm the glory of God." Like you you'd think that person is a megalomaniac, right? But but uh, think about that like in context though. Like you are the glory of God. It's not just that you're like a living image of him. You're a picture of him walking around in this world. Like you are his glory. Like who you are, the way you operate, the way you think and make decisions, your your character qualities. That's the glory of Elohim. I don't know, like write that on a sticky note and put it on your mirror. So the first thing you see in the morning is like you are the glory of God. Wow. So like when he shines his light, he shines his light through you. And here he, spe- he specifically um, refers to males in that pr- capacity. I think that applies to both males and females because we're all created in his image. So when then um, let's, let's um, try and infer a couple like practical things from this. So he goes on to say like, okay, so every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Okay, so here's the first thing we see here. Women in the early congregation prayed and they prophesied. All right? So there's a big place for that. What does this head-covered thing mean? Does that mean a woman has to make sure she has a doily on her head or she's out of order? I don't know. Based on like the context here, I, I wouldn't infer that necessarily, although some people would. Yeah. Here's on a deeper level, though. Like Maybe what he's saying is like, okay, if you are a man and he gives you something to pray or prophesy, do that fearlessly and do it from all your heart and don't let some other authority figure top that off. Like, there's, there's, this, there's this level of freedom in the body of Messiah, okay? Um, if, if you're a married woman, if you're going to pray and prophesy, make sure that you're in right relationship with your husband. Because I don't know why, but from what I understand in here, if a married woman isn't in right relationship with her husband and she starts praying and prophesying, it can get wonky. Maybe that's something we can infer from this. I don't know. So maybe that's one thing we could infer on a practical level. Um, here's something interesting, too, in verse 8. He says, um, man wasn't created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. This is interesting because this is like pre-fall. Okay, like the human race fell and fell really badly, right? And uh, things have been a mess since then. And um, I just, we, we see here like an insight into the original design. In, in the family unit specifically, there's this, there's this thing in the family unit where if you are a man, then you have a mission from the Holy One. And he's calling you to hear his voice and to receive that and to be that servant, firstly to the Almighty and secondly to your family. And there's something about... This is from Paul. This is Paul's commentary on the first couple of chapters of Genesis. There's something about a woman that's designed to back that up and support that in like a very powerful way, in tangible ways, and uh, in indispensable ways. And uh, I, I, I can, I, since Genevieve and I have been married for about three and a half years now, like I've really, I've come to understand that. Like in some regards, I'm more the figurehead of our family. Um, I'll often be more the spokesperson. Uh, when the Hebrew course comes out, I'm going to be the one on there um, doing a lot of teaching. But it's not me producing the Hebrew course. I'll use this as an example. It's Genevieve and me. And she's as much a part of that as me. Like, if it wasn't for her, that thing wouldn't happen. 
like her her support in my life is indispensable. Like she's the power center in my life. You know what I'm saying? And and so I just uh, I, I I'm I'm just kind of thinking aloud here about maybe what Paul was getting at with this. And to take this on a broader level, like, okay, we're talking more about some dynamics in the family unit. On a broader level, we are the bride of Messiah. You are the bride of Messiah. And for some of us guys, it's kind of, it's a little challenging getting in the mindset of being a bride, right? I have a hard time imagining myself in a white wedding dress with a big flowing veil or whatever. That's just kind of freaky. But, like, we're talking on a spiritual level here, okay? But, like, you're the bride of Messiah. And in that regard, just as, like, Eve was created to to be that like indispensable support, that power center for Adam, somehow that's what you are to Yeshua. Like Yeshua has a mission. The Father sent him. And before he like ascended, he said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So that mission that Mashiach bears is a mission that we bear also. We help him in that mission. We're his co-workers. So like as the bride, we're not just like sitting around and sipping beverages and whatever, dropping grapes in her mouth, right? Like, we're on the front lines. Like, Messiah's bride wears army boots. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're taking the nations for the God of Israel. We're helping Yeshua in that process. So, that, that's how I see it anyway. I'm just trying to get some practically useful things out of this passage instead of just saying, okay, guys, so, you know, basically, like, next week I want to see every woman here with a doily on her head or we're not getting the point of this. It's deeper than a doily on the head. So, or, or a kippah, whatever it is. And here's the interesting thing. Symbol is in italics, so that's not actually in the, the Greek text. It literally just says, therefore the woman ought to have authority on her head. So, like, I'm trying to, like, not get into all the nitty-gritty details of this so much. I'm just trying to see what can we infer from this in terms of principles. What, we, what can we get on a practical level, right? So here's my understanding. Like, if you read this passage and you walk away and you start putting a doily on your head, but you don't have a good relationship with your husband, then you've missed the point of this passage. You know, maybe, maybe the, that's something we could infer on a practical level. Yeah. Okay, let's look at a couple other things here. In verse 21, apparently they're, they're having the Master's Supper which, of course, originally is in the context of the Passover Seder. And it says, okay, so in your eating, one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So this gives us a, this gives us a little peek into how the early, early Messianic community did stuff. Let me ask you, is it possible in your typical communion scenario to get drunk? Okay, for one thing, it's grape juice, right? And for another thing, they're like in little itty-bitty shot glasses. So, I mean, like, you could chug a hundred of those things and you wouldn't get drunk. It's just, it's just interesting, based on this passage, that it does seem that they used alcoholic beverages in some of their liturgical rites in the early Messianic community. And, um, also, it's very hard to become a glutton on a wafer. It is hard to commit gluttony with wafers. That's very true. So... You know, what I, what I get out of that is like, there was this element where it wasn't like this starvation mentality with the little itty-bitty wafer and the little tiny shot glass. Like, th- this was something that represented the abundance of our Father. It, it, it was a picture of the abundant life that we have in Messiah, hey? So, um, like, that context was the Passover Seder. At the Passover Seder, you do have four cups. There is a potential there, right, to abuse that. Um, you do have, like, a real feast. So you can just see that, like, this was more what the early, uh, the early church was, was doing. That is so cool. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been to a love feast before. So, like, that's a verse that, you know, I'm going to have to look at. It, 
Oneg on steroids, yeah. <laughs> Although, I don't know, like, Oneg is, Oneg is pretty souped up to begin with. Maybe that would qualify. Um, here, I'll, I have a little story for you, by the way, just about that, that thing. So one of the things Paul mentions, too, is like, you know, um, long hair on men and long hair on women, so I wanted to read you a little, a little, um, a little story about that. A young boy had just gotten his driving permit. He asked his father, who was a rabbi, if they could discuss the use of the car. His father took him to a study and said to him, I'll make a deal with you. You bring your grades up, study the Torah more, get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. After about a month, the boy came back and again asked his father if they could discuss the use of the car. They again went to the father's study where his father asked, said, Son, I've been very proud of you. You've brought up your grades, you've studied the Torah diligently, but you didn't get your hair cut yet. The young man waited a moment and replied, You know, Abba, I've been thinking about that. You, uh, you know, uh, Samson had long hair. Uh, Samuel had long hair. Um, Noah had long hair. And even Moses had long hair. To which the rabbi replied, Yes, and they walked everywhere they went. <laughs> I kind of like that story. But I don't know. I'm not... I, I used to, like, in my, in my teens, I had dreadlocks, I had long hair, and I had, like, a Mr. T haircut for a while, and I had some pretty pretty dangerous haircuts, so, I don't know, I, I, the first thing about someone that I would point out is not the length of their hair. Yeah, I'm sure. I've enjoyed talking with them to the degree we have. Okay, here's something, I, I think we need to, like, have a discussion about this, maybe over Oneg, but, like, in First Corinthians 11, 27 to 32... Uh, Shaul has some really serious words to say about eating the bread that symbolizes, like, you know, that is a memorial of the master's death, and um, having that cup that pictures, like, his blood that was shed to bring us into the new covenant. And um, he says some really serious things about it. Like, he says, um, if you, like, you need to examine your life first and make sure you're right with God before you partake of that. Um, there are actually some people in the early, that, that congregation who had died prematurely and other people who were very sick because they were like, they were, they were partaking of that holy rite, but when they weren't right with God. And so like, I, I'm thinking about that with regards to a Passover Seder. Um, often, you know, we, there, there's, a, there's sometimes a trend in the Messianic world to have like really big Seders, right? You do it as like an outreach event. You invite everybody you can. But I'm thinking like, but what about the element where we have the cup that symbolizes Yeshua's, Yeshua's blood that was shed and all this, right? Like, according to Paul, we could be, like, we could be putting people in, like, lethal situations, like, in danger. You know, so... Yeah, so, I don't know, it's something we'll have to talk about. Because, on the other hand, I love, how, I love how Passover is such a beautiful picture of the New Covenant and, like, a picture, too, of how we as the broader... Christian community are part of Israel, etc. So maybe we can talk about that more over Oneg. I think maybe quite a few of us would, would have thoughts, and I have a couple thoughts too. That's kind of a big, it's a big question. Um, okay, here, here's another thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, um, No one can say Yeshua is Lord. He's the Master, except by the Holy Spirit. So does that mean literally you can't say those three words? Except by the Holy Spirit, or is it about like a lifestyle and a, a heart posture, etc.? So just think about that for a second, though. Like, okay, so if our objective is to like invite people to come and follow Yeshua and encourage people in their discipleship, 
and inspire people to submit their lives to him and his authority. You know, like, the whole, um, like, living for his cause, um, being allegiant to his cause. Like, Greg and I have talked about that a lot. This is the key. The key is, like, you can't do that unless the Holy Spirit is moving in your life, unless God is doing something in your heart. So a very practical thing that you can be praying for people, if they're living in open rebellion against the creator of the universe, or if they're like flaunting Yeshua's claims, pray for the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit for that person. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to make the difference, right? That's where the power comes in. And uh, similarly, you know, um, part of Yeshua's lordship has to do with obeying him. And part of obeying him has to do with doing stuff from the Torah. So if our, one, of our, one of the elements of our mission is to teach people to do everything that Yeshua commanded us and to help bring people back to the Torah and see how it's relevant, the first thing that we should be focused on is seeing that person filled with His Spirit, seeing that person learning to walk by His Spirit. If there are barriers in a person's life to the Holy Spirit flowing and moving, then that's what needs to be dealt with first, right? We don't want to put the cart before the horse. I think sometimes in the Messianic community, people just want to see everybody start, like, just become Torah observant overnight. Like cold turkey, just cut all the stuff that isn't Torah observant and start doing the whole thing, right? And, and I think, like, that is a very small-minded approach. And I think that's putting the cart before the horse. The horse is the Holy Spirit. The cart is submitting to Yeshua's authority, following him in discipleship, and doing the Torah, right? So let's make sure that we are a congregation that is focused on and prioritizing the role of the Ruach HaKodesh, uh, the spirit of holiness. Um, That's that's something that I would take away from that. I'll share with you one thing from the parasha. And then um, something I want to discuss over Oneg is the, the actual ten words, the ten commandments. And I want to talk about, okay, there are some do-nots in there. Those are called negative commandments, right? But what is the inverse of those? I want to talk about that, because it'll give us a fuller picture. Because when Genevieve and I were courting, maybe we'd become, maybe we were engaged, like betrothed already by that point. But we went back and we said, okay, these, these chapters, Exodus 19 and 20, these, this is a covenant document. Like, this is, this is the core of what a covenant is all about. And we're about to enter into the covenant of marriage. So we want to understand this deeply. What, do, what, do, uh, what does this covenant have to teach us about the marriage covenant? And one of the things we did is we went down that list of those ten things. And we said, what does this teach us about marriage, right? And um, I think it applies in relationships in general. So we're going to talk about that over Oneg. That's going to be fun. And uh, I'll share with you the one insight from this that was really meaningful to us at that time also. Like, we really saw... um, Okay, it has this theme of the altar, right? After the ten words, he says, okay, if you're going to build me an altar, like, build me an altar of earth. And I wonder what that teaches us about our worship. Like, what what I get out of that is, like, when he says, build me an altar of earth, it's like, you know, the, the pagan nations would build these massive edifices and like 10 story high altars and like the, the, the more gold on that thing the, the better it is you know and, um, and, and Yahweh the God of the Hebrews he just says you know just build me an altar of earth like just make a little dirt altar uh, what, is that, what does that tell us about what he's looking for in worship Genevieve uh, simplicity Charlotte our hearts 
Being real? Yeah. No mad man-madeness? Yeah. Wow. Greg, I'll just, I'll just repeat that. Uh, it's symbolic of like God making Adam as a temple of earth. You have no idea. Like, okay, I'll share with you the Hebrew for that because I think that's so bang on. Um, like a Hebrew, uh, here the word for altar is mizbach. Everybody say mizbach. mizbach. It's like the place where something is killed, right? Um, maybe when we worship something in us has to get killed, like the selfishness in me, um, the part of me that doesn't want to step out of my comfort zone, etc. Maybe stuff like that. And then, uh, but the altar of earth, that term is a mizbach. Adama. Everybody say Adama. So Adam is like Adam, right? Adama is just the the female form of Adam, which is male. So it's literally that's that's very true. Like you and I as Adam, as humanity, we're his altar too. Yeah. So just you know, it's like when we just keep it real and we, we, we stay human. You know what I'm saying? I, I think that's the place that's the place from which like real worship that actually means something to God can come. And that's something I really want to grow into. Like I I constantly in my in my life, like I'm I want to be real when I pray and talk to him. I want to be real when I worship and I hope we can grow together in that, like continuing to grow, you know? So yeah. I'll I'll just I'll leave you with a joke. Cause um this parsha is, is called Yitro, uh, like Jethro, right? Jethro um was the uh the father-in-law of um, Moses. It never mentions Moses' mother-in-law, but we'll assume that she was there too. And uh, so I wanted to read you a, a little story about Jewish mother and mothers-in-law. Um, a, a Jewish town had a shortage of men for wedding purposes. So they had to import men from other towns. One day, a groom-to-be arrived on a train, and two mothers-in-law, to-be, were waiting for him. And each was claiming ownership of him. A rabbi was called to solve the problem. After a few minutes of thought, he said, If this is the situation, you both want the groom, we'll cut him in half and give each one of you half of him. To this replied one woman, If that's the case, give him to the other woman. The rabbi said, Do that. The one willing to cut him in half is the real (laughs) mother-in-law. Yeah, you, you know, you know the original story about King Solomon as a judge, right? There were the two women, and they were both fighting over who the, whose the baby was. And he said, "Well, cut the baby in half." And the one woman said, "No, she can have the baby. Just don't kill the baby." And the other baby, the other woman said, "Cut the baby in half. If if uh, neither of us will have it." And then, of course, King Solomon, in the wisdom that he had, you know, said, "Give give the woman who would have given up the baby, just to keep it alive. Give the baby to her. She is the real mom." So anyway, that's, this, is the, this is the inverse of that story. The, the mother-in-law willing to cut the groom in half is the true mother-in-law. So. <laughs> I don't want to be that kind of mother <laughs> I have to admit, I don't have that type of relationship with my mother-in-law. She's, she's pretty nice. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.